Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, and, uh, and then put, uh, put your finger there if you can, and then flip over to Acts chapter 6. We're going to just hit Acts 6 real briefly, and then we'll move on to Ephesians. How many of you, just curious, have experienced a conflict or relational tension of some kind in the past week? So you've had a conflict or relational tension in the last seven days. Raise your hand. Just since last Sunday. Okay. Um, well, we're in, we're in really uh, beginning, we're in lesson two of this summer series that we're doing on conflict uh, resolution. Uh, we said last time that uh, for the next uh, couple of months, we're going to spend some time looking at relationships and thinking through the issue of conflict, what it is, how to prevent it if possible, uh, how to be a peacemaker and resolve a conflict in our, in our lives. So a question just to, to get us started here, uh, why do you think there is so much conflict in the church today? Not necessarily Faith Community Church, but we might say the capital C Church. Just why, why do you think that in in church in general, we have a lots and lots of conflict. What do you think some of those reasons might be? Yes. All right, it's made up of people. <laughs> Not perfect people, right? Imperfect people, sinful people. What else? Anything else come to mind? Yes. Sure, absolutely. We're going to, in fact, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this issue of expectations because that's a big big part of this. People come to church not even really sometimes with a clear picture of what the church is all about. So they're coming with these unbiblical expectations, uh, quickly disappointed when they come, and often with the lack of um, you know, skill and practice in, in working through those kinds of differences. Uh, one other, yes? All right, just, just spiritual warfare in general. I mean, we've got the, our, our enemy, we've got the world, we've got, of course, probably our greatest battles with the enemy within, right? Our own, our own hearts. In fact, we'll, look, we'll even discuss some of that um, later this morning. Just some thoughts on this, um, just to think about why we might have so much conflict, uh, again, sort of broadly speaking of the church. One of, that, one of those reasons, I think, might be because we have such a low view of theology, and a low view of, of doctrine, uh, or a low or shallow understanding of doctrine. So, in other words, what I mean by that is that people that come together that don't, are not grounded in the truth, um, they're focusing on the wrong things to begin with. So they're not really coming to, let's just say, they're, they're not really coming to a church gathering thinking about the things that unite them, right? Because it's really sound doctrine that is one of those unifying things for us. As believers, so they're coming to this church gathering, not really knowing a lot about the Lord and His character and re- redemption and their position in Christ and their responsibilities as a Christian. They really haven't gotten grounded in those things, and so they're really coming and gathering around surface issues. So they're getting together because they know so and so, or they this church offers this particular program or this thing that they like, and so it could just be their lack of understanding of, of the truth of God's Word. And then even in those churches that have right doctrine, there's often just a lack of love, right? I mean, Shane last week in his sermon in uh, Romans 13 uh, took a little, uh, went off a little, a little tangent. We went over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where he talked about this text where Paul says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Shane was making this connection between knowledge and our understanding of the truth and, and the fact that if we, are really, if we really understand sound doctrine, if we really understand truth, that should always lead to the goal of love, right? And so if you see a person that's growing in knowledge, but they're not growing in their love, in their relationships, then you've got, you got a big problem, in fact, what you have is someone who doesn't have a good conscience. You have someone that actually their, their mind and heart are being informed by the truth, but they're not bringing their life in line or in practice with the things that they're learning. And so there's this big discrepancy between what they know and what they practice. And because they have that discrepancy, they, they don't love the way that they should. 
So sometimes even in those churches where the truth is taught and people have a, a decent understanding of, of what, scripture, what the Scriptures teach, they still often don't get that the goal of this growth in knowledge in, is, is to be like Christ in, in the way that Christ loves. Uh, one other thing, uh, it could just be that the church has gotten off mission. Um, and, and what I mean by that is when you put army guys and marine guys in the same room without an enemy, what do they typically do? They typically fight each other, right? They fight one another. And so the church has in some ways just gotten off of track because the mission of the church is to love and obey Christ, to make disciples, to, to build up the body, to proclaim the gospel. It's, it's not getting involved in social and political causes. It's not to entertain people or to water down the gospel to the point where it's no longer offensive. And because the church has abandoned its mission and minimized the importance of sound doctrine and the biblical practice of love, then biblical unity and true reconciliation and peace go out the window. And so sometimes it's just that I think we've, in the church, we're not focused on the things that we're supposed to be focused on. Our, Our list of priorities and our definition of what the church is and the church is supposed to be about, it's, it's not always in line with what, what God thinks. And because of that, we're, we're chasing after these other things. We're trying to be relevant and we're trying to attract people and those sorts of things. And we're, we're actually not focused on those priorities that God has, which eventually leads to, to division and, and quarreling. Now, admittedly, this topic is, is a big one. Um, this issue of, of conflict, uh, both in our experience, uh, in our daily lives, and when we look at the subject throughout the scriptures, this is a, a huge subject to sort of tackle. Uh, in fact, conflict and conflict resolution really cover uh, the entire, you might say, the entire span of the Bible from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. It begins, of course, with the uh, in the early chapters of, of Genesis, this issue of sin in the garden, goes all the way to the final conflict between Satan and God at the end of the kingdom in Revelation 20. And so you could say that the Bible is a book about conflict. Um, In fact, the story of redemptive history begins with a note of conflict. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord declares, And I will put enmity, or or you could say hostility, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So that's it. That's an that's an important verse. Of course, that is a uh, that verse connects to so many things uh, in Scripture. But one of the things that it teaches us in regard to conflict is that God not only responds to conflict, He ordains it. Uh, that that is to say, it it ultimately accomplishes God's purposes. Now, that doesn't mean that that God is pleased when we fuss and fight uh, among one another. So we're never called, and you won't find in Scripture, uh, any sort of imperative or any sort of command for us to necessarily seek conflict uh, or to intentionally stir up conflict in our personal relationships. In fact, you'll actually see the opposite. You'll, You'll see this repeated command and mandate to resolve conflict. Right and to strive for peace. But it does mean that conflict should be understood as an important part of God's plan for, for each one of us, which is significant. It's significant because conflict often arises when we feel like things are not going our way. Right? When, we're, we're, uh, when things are not going according to our expectations. And in those situations, rather than see conflict as something that God has ordained, we typically see conflict as an obstacle. It's, it's something that is, that is getting in the way, right? Especially, like I said, if, we're, if, if, our expe- if we have expectations that are not being met. And what we really need to do initially is just embrace conflict as an opportunity to glorify God. I mean, that's, that's this sort of just fundamental principle that really not only conflict, but every difficulty, every trial in the Christian life, as it comes to us, we ought to be thinking, how can God be glorified through this, right? Instead of getting so focused in on, why does this have to happen? 
uh, why aren't things going the way that I expected them to go? We need to, to realize that, that conflict isn't always bad, right? Even, even the most mature Christians experience conflict and come out better for it. So what are, what are, those, what are some of those benefits of, of conflict? Well, we have an example in the New Testament. In fact, it's this account in Acts chapter 6 uh, in the early church where this conflict erupted because some people were complaining that they were being shortchanged in the distribution of food. This is actually a passage that we looked at, just mentioned last Sunday. So we have this, this conflict in the early church, but, but the apostles respond uh, wisely. They, they, they respond promptly, uh, calling a meeting to encourage discussion and to develop a solution. And the result is that the congregation selects seven trusted men to oversee the, the distribution of food. So we read about this in Acts 6, verse 1. It says, At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, or might say murmuring or muttering, arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Verse 5, this statement or the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And then they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and these, these other men. And verse 6 says, and they were brought before the, the apostles And after praying, they laid their hands on them. And then notice verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So one of the things we can learn from that is that when you handle conflict well, it's beneficial. If you just think about... This conflict that surfaced in the early days of the church, and then think about the way in which the church responded to this, and with the way in which the, the leaders of the church responded to this. Think about the, the, the outcome, or think about some of the benefits. I mean, ultimately, the problem was resolved, right? So problems are solved, roles and responsibilities were clarified, right? Because that's what conf- conflict causes us sometimes to step back and to say, what, what is my role in this, right? And what is this other person's role? And so this conflict in the church actually brought clarity to the roles and responsibilities of those in, in the congregation. People stepped up to meet needs in this situation, and so there was this need. These people were being neglected, and so the church responded by selecting faithful, godly individuals to oversee that and to, and to come up with a solution, Ultimately, the scripture says that the word of God spread, right? Because the need was there. The church responded properly to that. They came up with a solution. They implemented that solution. They focused on the right things. And because they quickly resolved these issues, it allowed those leaders to continue in their ministry of prayer in the word and the body was functioning and people were loving one another and there were godly attitudes in the mix. And because of that, the reputation of the church went up, right? So the, so the watching world's looking at the early church and they're saying, oh, there's problems, right? But, and you want to say, keep watching, right? That, we're going to have problems, right? So we're going to have conflicts. The church is saying, oh, uh, the world's saying, look, the church is, look at, all the, look at all the conflict and division. Look at how they're neglecting this group of people over here. Keep watching, right? Watch how the church responds. And in this case, the church did the right thing. And the Bible says that the word spread and ultimately that God was, was honored. And conflict in our lives can be just as beneficial. Well, in, in what kinds of ways? Well, it can drive us to search the scriptures. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I get in the middle of difficult, tense situations and relationships, it just drives me to the word. <laughs> it's like, what I need to know. I need, I need God's wisdom, right? And so it just drives me back there to search God's word. And you could say this is true of every trial, right? Not just conflict in, in the church or in relationships. Really, every, every form of trial and affliction 
ought to do this in our lives. In fact, Psalm 119.71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. So there's this connection between going through affliction and then learning God's word, right? It drives us to greater dependency on the word and a greater search, more intense search. So that can be helpful, right? I mean, anything that would drive us to the scriptures, beneficial, right? What about, what about this benefit? Uh, it drives us to consider what we really believe. So it, dri- it drives us to ask the question, is what I say I believe, is that, is that just my, the doctrine that I profess or is it actually the doctrine that I live? Do I live by these things? Proverbs 15, 28 says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. So what happens a lot of times in conflict is the, 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 the godly examine their hearts, right? They look, they look within their hearts they examine how they ought to behave, how they ought to respond. They, you say you believe these things, but do you really believe these things? That's what, that's what conflict can do. It can drive us to be better anchored in the things that we profess to know and to live by. Uh, it also helps us to work hard in improving communication skills. Because we're not all that great <laughs> at communicating. In fact... Uh, I've got some, probably along the way, I'll share some examples um, in the weeks to come of just, sometimes conflict just comes from simple misunderstanding. I mean, like, I thought I communicated, uh, communicated clearly about that, but I actually didn't. And so sometimes you're just, you're just missing, you and this other person are just not, just not agreeing on something, but they, you said something, they heard something different, you thought that you were clear, maybe, maybe, maybe not. And so it can drive us to be better at that. It also produces spiritual growth and endurance. James 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. So spiritual growth, it gives us opportunity to, to be a servant and prefer others. As Philippians 2 tells us to do that, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to learn more about our weaknesses. Right. So conflict is uh, it brings to the surface things that in our lives that we, we may have believed that we were good at or strong in, but then we realize we're not so strong in those areas. So it exposes those deficiencies in our lives, which is a good thing. Uh, it's certainly an opportunity to see God's power at work as we live out the gospel and gives us opportunities every day to exemplify Christ who was in a number of conflicts, right? I mean, a, a lot of uh, tense situations and to be able to see how Christ responded to that and for us to be able to emulate our Lord uh, is, is, is a blessing. So we need to keep all of that in mind. And we need to keep in mind this issue of the sovereignty of God, right? Because conflict can be one of the most discouraging things that we ever face in ministry uh, in the ministry of the gospel, or even in, in the church. It can be one of those times when we feel the most deserted by God. It can be one of those times when we tend to question God's control of the things that, that, that surround us. But we have to have this fixed in our minds that God is in control of all conflict. He's accomplishing His uh, divine and loving purposes through that. And, and often we don't even see what some of those purposes are until long after the conflict is over, right? So it's, we don't always see the benefits of conflict when we're in the midst of it. But we often are able to look back on those times of tension and conflict and division and see how God has used that not only in our lives but in the lives of others and even through the body of Christ and, and through the church, all to his glory. Now, the last time we, we began to unpack Ephesians 4, so if you flip over there, we looked at what we called the motive or the motivation for dealing with relationships in a, God, a God-honoring or a gospel-focused or saturated way in verse 1. We're just, we're just sort of looking at the, the, the idea of what, or asking this question, what moves us, right? What, what motivates us to handle relationships and people in the right way? And Paul writes there in verse 1, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, 
implore you, which is just sort of this authoritative sort of exhortation. It's not, it's not Paul sort of cowardly begging and pleading. It really comes across more as an authoritative exhortation. So Paul's exhorting the church now, and in light of all the things that he said up to this point, he says, I exhort you, I implore you to walk. Okay, and so you'll actually, if you go from this point forward through the book, chapters 4, 5, and 6, you'll see this idea of walking, which really just refers to going about or living our lives or conducting ourselves in a certain way. So he's just saying that I, I exhort you to go about your life or to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And we talked a little bit about the call last time. Uh, it's a holy calling, it's a sovereign call, it's a heavenly call, saving call, gracious call, effectual call, irresistible call, irrevocable call, according to Romans, a hope-filled call. He actually mentions back in chapter 1 about that. But particularly the fact that the Lord has called us to to peace, and and Paul has emphasized in chapters 2 and 3 that he has called us into one body, the church. So there's all kinds of things about this call of God in the believer's life. This call that begins with God and that God is going to carry out. He's not going to abandon this work, this project. He's going to carry this through. So it's an unstoppable call. But really the, 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 the context that's closest to this particular passage has to deal with that call of bringing Jews and Gentiles into, this, into the family of God, into the body of Christ. And now Paul says... We are to live in a manner worthy of that call, or to walk worthily, which literally means to to bring up the other beam of the scales, or you might even say to bring equilibrium. That is to say, bring your conduct in balance with or equal to your call. So he's like saying, it's like if you were looking at a, at a pair of scales. It's saying on this one side is weighed down on one side is the call of God. And he's saying, now, what I want you to do on the other side of the scale is I want you, on the other side of the scale is your conduct. And what I want you to do is I want you to to bring your conduct up to where it's equal to your calling. Right? Or as we said last time, you live out your, who you are as a believer. You bear the name of Christ. And so he's saying, in light of all that God has done in your life as a believer and And not only that, but again, keeping in mind what he's doing with you as an individual, but in the context of the fact that he's doing this in the body, he's bringing this body together, the church, he's saying now, in light of that truth, bring your conduct up to where it's equal to your calling. So create this this, this, this balance in your life. So that's, that's the motivation. That's, that's, the, that's the motive for doing what Paul's telling us to do here and what he goes on to, to continue to tell us in these final chapters of Ephesians. He's just saying you have to constantly look back at your call. You have to constantly look back at what God has done in you individually and corporately in the body of Christ, and that becomes the foundation and the fuel for what he's about to ask you to do. Whereas we say sometimes... The indicatives always precede the imperatives. So it's what God asks you to do is based upon what God has done. God isn't asking you to just go out and muster this up on your own, you know, like your, in your own strength. He's saying, no, you're, you do what I'm about to ask you to do. You do that in light of what I have already done in Christ. So in light of those things, live worthily of the call. Now, what about the manner in which we are to do that? What about the manner, or you might say the method, for dealing with relationships in a gospel-saturated way? Well, it's interesting that Paul doesn't give us a list of techniques on how to do that. He doesn't give us, at least, at least to begin with, he doesn't just say, okay, so here's a scenario, you're in a conflict with this person in the church, and this is the one, two, three, four. This is how you walk through this. He doesn't get into this sort of the process of reconciliation, which, which we're going to eventually get to, right? I mean, techniques are important. We'll eventually get down to the nuts and the bolts of walking through a conflict. 
whether that conflict involves someone sinning against you or whether that involves you sinning against someone else or whether that involves both. Because usually it's both. It's usually someone sins against someone and then that other person, the one that's sinned against, usually responds, unfortunately, in kind. Right, they respond in an ungodly way, which and then this thing just gets going. Right, it's like it's like a tennis match. Right, this person said that, then this person says this, and then this person does that, and then this person retaliates in this way. We'll eventually get to how to walk through that and what are the sort of the sequence, I guess, of things of steps that we need to to, to walk through biblically. But Paul doesn't give us that just yet. In fact, what Paul does is he focuses on the inner man. He focuses on your inner person, okay, which sounds pretty Christian, right? I mean, that is, that is very typical, right, for the Lord to say, I'm going to deal with your heart, okay? I'm not going to just deal with the stuff out here, the, the surface things, the actions or the behavior or the words. I'm going to drill into where this all stems from and comes from, and that is in your inner life. So God's concern, first of all, is with who you are on the inside. So what Paul does here is he focuses on what we might call attitudes or character traits, important character traits, Um, all of these significant and, and, and things that we have to be growing in constantly as followers of Christ. So what are they? Number one, humility. Humility. He says, with all humility. Now, a lot of people think that Paul coined this word because you don't really find it in, before this time in, 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 the, in secular writings, in secular Greek. It, it literally means low-mindedness. Low-mindedness, which, which, believe me, was not a virtue in Greek culture. In fact, the Greeks would have not put humility on the top of the list of qualities to be commended. We actually have evidence where this particular quality of humility was on a list of things that were to be most detested. So in Greek culture, they would say, oh, the one thing that you don't want to have in your life, the thing that you ought to despise and detest the most is humility. And so Paul just goes, if you will, countercultural by saying, no, that's not the way that we live as believers. This is a virtue in the Christian life. And it's really, it's really about having a, a servant attitude, a servant attitude. Over in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul sets it in contrast to self-seeking, or what he says there's vain glory boasting. And when you think about what God has done in His mercy and His grace to save us, how could we be anything other than low-minded? Right? It's it's like for Paul, this this just is like, it's just so natural for him to come off the heels of everything that he has just said God has done in the first three chapters of Ephesians and to say, in light of all that, my goodness, folks, you ought to be driven <laughs> on your face in humility. I mean, if you walk away from hearing what I just said and you're high-minded, I mean, that, that would have been unthinkable for Paul. So this is just sort of a, like, what else are we to do? I mean, how else should we respond to the mercy of God other than to be of humble thinking? In fact, Romans chapter 12, our Again, several, maybe several months ago, Shane was in that passage, and Paul writes there, this is verse 3, he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now, you, you remember that that was the sort of beginning there just before verse 3 and verse 2. We, we start seeing these exhortations. It's very similar to Ephesians in that you have 
mostly in chapters 1 to 11, Paul talking about the gospel and salvation, and once again, God's mercies. In fact, he brings that up in, in verse 1 of chapter 12, that in view of God's mercies, this is the way you're to live. So it's a very similar transition. And so he's saying, and in view of God's mercy and in light of being called into one body, because Paul mentions that actually in this Romans 12 text. He's, he's talked about the mercy of God, but he's also reminding them that this is about God. Again, this is about what he's doing in and through the church. So in view of the mercy of God and in light of being called into one body, certainly avoiding false humility, but Paul's saying that we need to be cognizant of who we are in God's program. Right? And so he's kind of referring back to, remember Paul talked about the Jews, the nation of Israel, and the Gentiles, and how God was bringing in the Gentiles, and how all of that, just understanding redemptive history, ought to cause us to be humble. Just to say, I can't believe we're even in. <laughs> you know, it's like, we ought to just be blown away that we're even in the family of God. And yet, redemptive history just confirms that over and over and over again. And if we were truly low-minded, you think about how that would affect our relationships with others. If we had a low estimation of our position, our giftedness, or our knowledge. Think about what that would do in your relationships if you could keep it in your mind every day, a proper biblical perspective of exactly who you are in God's program that you don't deserve to be a part of this. And yet God has grafted you into the church. If you could just keep that in your mind when someone does something that's irritating. <laughs> if, if someone uh, stands in the way of something that you want, if you could just say, Lord, I don't deserve. I just don't deserve this. I mean, I have expectations. There's nothing wrong with having expectations. Now, you might have ungodly expectations. That certainly wouldn't be acceptable. But sometimes our expectations aren't necessarily or inherently sinful. I mean, we want good things, right? I mean, we expect good things, we want good things, but then sometimes those things don't pan out the way that they, we want them to or in our timing, and we get upset about that. And it leads to sin in some cases and, and division. But Paul's saying, man, if we could just have, if we could just keep in our minds the, a, a biblical perspective on, on where we are, it would make a huge difference. So that's the first one. Humility. Then he says, and gentleness. So that's the second thing here. It's actually the word for meekness, uh, which is the way that the King James translates this. It's, you might call this, it's mildness of manner. Now, it's very easy to, for us to, when we hear the word meekness, to think weakness, right? But you have to keep in mind, just think about a, a horse. Average weight of a horse is 1,000 pounds. And you think about a, a little girl, a 12-year-old girl. We fact, on the way home, sometimes we'll run over here after church, we'll hit the Mexican restaurant, and then the way that I go home is a little bit differently, but I pass this, there's a, essentially pass a little horse farm, and when we drive by there, often they've got these, these young people out there, and they're teaching them how to ride, and what's amazing is that that horse that weighs a thousand pounds can be steered and can be controlled by a 12-year-old girl, right? Well, how is that? Well, it's because that, that animal has been, has been broken, it's not because the animal is weak, right? It's because the animal has been brought under control. So meekness is not weakness. It is strength and power under control, which is critical in our relationships, right? To learn how to control our bodies, to bring our bodies, our voices, our words, our impulses under the control of the Spirit and to be deliberately gentle as opposed to using our power for the purpose of retaliation. William Barclay says this. He says, The man who is gentle is the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. The gentle man is one who's always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. So Paul says we are to live with every kind because that word alls really encompasses both of these ideas of humility and patience. So Paul says we're, we're to, or, or excuse me, um, gentleness. So Paul says we're to live with every kind of humility and gentleness, and then he adds this third character trait, patience, with patience. 
uh, or we might say long-suffering, right? It's a slowness in avenging wrong. James 1.19 says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So it means holding yourself in control for a long time and not giving way to your, your passions. In fact, it was used occasionally in, in classical writings to refer to the patience of, a, of, of the people of a city that was under siege. As this one writer says, a city under siege whose citizens plant turnips and hope to eat the ripened results before the city's ultimate defeat. So it's like the city is under siege, and yet they go and they plant their turnips, and they go and they, and they, and they really believe that they're going to plant these turnips and that these tur- turnips are going are to ripen, and they're actually going to harvest these turnips and eat and enjoy these turnips before the city actually collapses. And so it's just this idea that even though this assault is coming sometimes against us relationally, that we have this determination that we're going to suffer long. In fact, we're going to suffer so long, you know what we're going to do? We're going to plant some turnips, right? Before we would give in to our passions and before we would try to personally avenge this wrong, we're going to plant some turnips, we're going to watch them grow, we're going to harvest them and eat and make a meal, right? So it's just this commitment to sort of to just just dig in in a good way, to just settle in and to just say, I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to, I'm not going to return evil for evil. I'm just not going to do that. Of course, for the believer, patience is that cautious endurance that does not abandon hope, but a patience that endures without immediate results. So it's not like that city in the sense that we just believe, oh, it's, eventually we're, they're, they're going to break down the walls. We're gonna, it's going to all be over. But it is this idea that we endure even though we don't see immediate change. We just continue to do this and continue to do this and continue to do this. Which means that that Christians must stay their vengeance when wronged by another, especially in light of our union in one body. Now you think about the opposites of these things, uh, what happens when there is tension in in a relationship. If you lack these qualities, rather than humility... What does pride or high-mindedness do when, when there is tension in relationships? Well, it digs its heels in in the wrong kind of way, right? It, it just says, I'm not, I'm not going to budge. I have to get the last word in. I've got to get my opinion across. And this pride just compounds relational problems. What about the opposite of gentleness? The opposite of gentleness is, is roughness, right? Harshness. What happens when you speak to someone harshly, right? When so, or when someone, someone speaks to you harshly, how do you want to respond? Well, you want to respond in a harsh way, right? You want to hit the ball back, right? When, when someone hits the, the ball to you and it's coming fast and hard, you want to take your racket and slap that thing back, right? Proverbs 15.1, though, says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So when anger comes at us, we're not supposed to respond in kind. And even when we're approaching other people, we should not do that with full force. In other words, we have the option to come across with full force, but we make a deliberate choice that we're not going to crush people with our words and our actions. What about patience? What's the opposite of patience? Instead of long-suffering, it's (laughs) short-suffering. It's being quick to give up on others. It's being quick to give in to revenge, quick to put people in their place and to point out their faults. Good question for us is, are are you an easy person to live with or are you a difficult person to live with? I didn't ask if, if your family loves you. <laughs> right? Does your spouse love you? They say, oh, yeah, I, I, oh, I love you. I love you. And then you ask this question, but am I easy to live with? You might get a different look on their face, right? That look, do you just, yeah. <laughs> right? Do you love me? Yes. Am I easy to live with? Well, you know. But the gospel should make us low maintenance people. 
low-maintenance people. The gospel should be teaching us to be more gracious, less irritable, more patient. And with all these things, listen, these are, these are not just personality traits. They are character traits. Sometimes people will make excuses, right? They'll say that, that they come across forcefully, but that that's just their personality, or that they, they, they don't have a lot of patience with others because that's just who they are, that's just the way that they grew up, or they use some kind of a personality test you know, to say, I'm a, I'm a type so-and-so person, that's just who I am. But that's not where these things come from, right? In fact, Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 12, Speaking to the religious leaders there, he says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which does what? Fills the what? Fills the heart. Fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. So the heart has to do with your treasures. And then he says, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I think what Jesus is saying there is that your words so reveal your heart that even though God will is concerned about your heart and will judge your heart, when you stand before Him, that even if God did not have this CT scan right of your heart, if He didn't have the ability to see what was in your heart, your words alone would be enough to condemn you. Right? Because your words are so attached to your heart. That cord, it's like, here's your heart, and it's like a cord is attached to your words as they come out. He's saying that what you do and what you say is so connected to the treasures of your heart, what you love, what you hate, what you fear, those affections in your heart, is such a close connection that Jesus could judge you alone just on your words. If He just had a log of every word that you've spoken in your life, He would have enough (laughs) to say, I know you belong to me, or that you don't, right? So we think with our hearts. Our hearts have intentions. We speak out of our hearts, or sometimes we choose not to speak because of what is in our hearts. But it's about your treasures. And when you spend time thinking about what what you spend time thinking about is bound to your treasures and what is important to you. So the next time you're feeling this tension in relationships with someone else, take note of the way that you're thinking. What are you thinking in that moment? Because that will help you to understand what's going on in your heart. For example, you're talking with someone and you think to yourself, I'm not going to let you push me around like that. Well, what does that reveal? Well, that that could reveal the fact that you have a controlling tendency in your heart. Or maybe you think, I just don't don't want to talk about that. I'll talk about all this other stuff, but that's off limits. I just don't want to have that discussion right now. Well, what, what is that? Well, maybe that's just a desire for comfort in the heart. You just don't want to do the difficult things. You just want the easy path. You just want everybody to just get along. You don't want to have to work through those challenges in relationships. Or maybe you think, I'm afraid of what they would think of me if I said that particular thing. What could that be? It could be a fear of man right in the heart. So you can see how what we value and treasure in our hearts leads us to think certain things and to say and do certain things. It's not that we don't have a personality, it's that we don't have a fixed personality. We don't have this personality that's, that so drives what we do. That's, that's not biblical. Because we can grow and we can change to be like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can grow in Christ's likeness. And that change begins in our hearts. Now back in Ephesians 4, we have these attitudes in verse 2 which come from the heart of man, but what actions should follow these attitudes? And there's two of them. The first one is forbearing with love. You'll notice there the end of verse 2 says, showing tolerance for one another in love, which isn't about a tolerance for what is wrong, or we might say a tolerance for error, but it's a tolerance for people. So it's showing tolerance or 
It literally means to hold up or to bear with. So it's this idea of learning how to put up with others. Learning how to endure others' weaknesses and failures and sins. Living in a Genesis 3 world, we we have to learn how to endure one another. We have to learn how to not have such big toes. To not be so sensitive. To not be so quick to be offended. In fact, you could say this. We ought to be difficult to offend. Rather than being easy to be, offend, be offended, we ought, it ought to be difficult for people to offend us. Think about the opposite of this, of this loving forbearance, would be being intolerant of other people, not, not considering the challenges that other people face, not remembering what you, were, you yourself were saved from, not looking in the mirror and seeing the work that remains to be done in your life, not seeing your own sin. Sometimes we get so fixated on what others need to do that we fail to address our own failures and our own deficiencies. So we need to be tolerant, need to be forbearing in love. So it's not just, it's not just a toleration that just sort of says, okay, I'll put up with it. I'll endure no, it's with, in, or you want to say by love, right? So the fact that he says that we're to do this, showing tolerance in love, is to say it's not just sort of gritting your teeth and putting up with someone else. If you don't add that phrase in love, then you end up being resentful, right? So it's not just put up with people, it's put up with people and love, <laughs> right? In love with love. Love them. So it's not just sitting back and and just, it's not all just about this restraint. It's also about moving towards people, right? It's also about demonstrating the love of Christ to them. Which kind of feeds into this this other thing here he brings up in verse 3. When Paul says that we are to be striving to preserve the unity. Striving to preserve the unity. Being diligent, he writes, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this is about zealous effort. You think about the fact that God has adopted you. You think about the reality that He has redeemed you. The fact that God has moved towards you and and has worked hard at redeeming His broken relationship with you. Even though, again, we could rewind back to Ephesians 2. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 1, verse 3, we were children of wrath. You think about the sacrifice of God, the sacrifice on His part. You think about His effort and His determination in the face of opposition. And you begin to sort of grasp this principle. Paul says, in light of God's call in your life, you should go to great effort to guard and to watch over your unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Being diligent, endeavoring, making every effort to preserve the unity. So this is what we have to do, folks. This is, we have to be diligent. Just, put, just write, if you're taking notes, just put diligence. I need diligence in this area. We need to stretch ourselves. We need to push through the difficulties because we love the Lord and because we love one another. We need to exhaust ourselves in order to win our brother or sister or to love them or to honor them. Like a gladiator exhausting himself to stay alive. But what happens, right? What happens when we begin to feel tension in relationships? We tend to want to pull back. We tend to want to disengage. We tend to want to say, okay, I'll tolerate that for a while. But as you're tolerating, because you're not tolerating in love... We tend to do this, right? We're tolerating, we're tolerating, we're tolerating. (laughs) Until that person that we used to talk to maybe three or four times a week, that's now trickled down to maybe you talk to them on Sunday. Or there may be somebody that you talk to on a frequent basis that you haven't talked to in months, right? It could get so bad that that this person might even be a part of the church, and yet when you see them in a public place, you, you don't even make the effort to go down, and, and you're in Walmart and you see him, you don't even make an effort to go over and have a conversation, you go down the other aisle, right? You just, it's to the point where now you're just avoiding that person. That's a lack of diligence, right? So we, we tend to do this. 
But if we understand the gospel, we'll be motivated by it to develop these character traits and from a changed heart, we will move toward others. Imitating God himself, exhausting ourselves to try to be reconciled to those with whom we have broken or tense relationships. Not using all of our energies to build our case, but using our energies to promote peace. Not using our energy to become proficient at finding problems, but using our energy to become proficient at resolving them. Paul would go on here in the end of this chapter in verse 31 and say, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Why? Because those things are inconsistent with the gospel. They don't line up with the gospel. And in verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. So how, how do you do that? Notice the last part. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So, there it is again. The gospel applied. You're applying the realities of the gospel. You begin to practice verse 32, being kind and tenderhearted and forgiving, which will kill the things in verse 31. The bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the clamor and slander and malice in your heart. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Who is a uh, Yeah, so you, you've got basically, there's, you have a, I mean, I would say, a, there's a sensitivity there yeah. with you because you've got someone that's, or let's just say this, Albert, Albert's just, he's in, a, he's in a new living situation and he's got someone in, in case for those of you who can't, can't hear, there's someone that he's met there and there's a sensitivity because this guy says he believes something that Albert doesn't believe, but you also said, I think this is critical, you do believe he's a Christian. Okay, so, and I would say in those situations, give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, uh, I mean, people say they're saying, now I'm not saying don't talk to them about the gospel. What I'm saying is if somebody tells me I'm a Christian, I'm not like, no, they're not. No, they're not. No, they're not. I'm like, praise the Lord. Now, and then you start to talk to them about that. Well, then you're going to learn more about that person, right? As you get to know their doctrine, as you get to watch their life and all these kind of things. But I think it's, I think it's good for you to make that assumption that they're being honest about what they, who they are. Okay? I'm not saying don't continue the conversation or that there's no possibility that, that, person's, that they're not saved or that they're, that they're self-deceived or something like that. I'm just saying I would take that profession of faith at face value and then begin to relate to that person, get to know that person. And then the more that you do that, the more that you find out. But when you've got a sensitivity like this, so Albert's just saying this person believes a certain thing about this teaching in Scripture, about does God, basically does God still speak today and some of those types of issues. Albert's been convinced through his past that 
that Lord doesn't do that, right? The Lord has spoken through His Son. He has spoken through His Word. God's not continuing to give revelation today. So how do you relate? Because this guy continues to bring bring these issues up. And I would just say, first of all, Albert has lots of opportunities, right? This is not an obstacle. This guy is not an obstacle to run over or to get around. This is someone that if you believe is, is a brother in the Lord then you patiently teach, you patiently correct. I mean, right, even Paul told Timothy this in his own ministry, that when in this ministry of correction, that you still are, you're never given the right and the freedom as a Christian to not be gentle. So Paul even tells Timothy, in the ministry of of correcting and in the ministry of rebuke, you still are bound to what Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, 2, and 3. You must strive to preserve the unity. You must be patient. You must be humble. You must be gentle. But you must also stand on the truth. And so what you have to do is put the two together. Paul would go on in, later in chapter 4 and say, speak the truth in love. Right? So it's not, we don't have to pick here which one. We don't have to say, well, I guess we just need to be more loving people and abandon the truth. And we don't have to make this decision that we're just, no, we need to be people that stand on the truth, but we, we, we can't, we don't necessarily have to be loving. No, we need to be loving, gentle, patient, humble, striving for unity, forbearing in love, and also be people that are faithful to what the scriptures teach. And that's the challenge. And we're actually going to talk more about this. That is the rub. In fact, part of the challenge, and we'll get to this at the very end of the series, is even determining what are the big rocks and the little rocks. Like, what are the teachings of Scripture that we should be making the most about, the most, a bigger deal about, and what are the issues that we shouldn't be making as much of a big deal about, and we ought to be more tolerant, if you will, in some of those other areas. And that can trickle all the way down to just personal opinions. About things, And so part of the battle here is just trying to figure out, okay, you take an issue like, does God still speak today? I'm not saying that's a small issue. What I'm saying is it, it's, it, there's a spectrum of things there. And, and for Albert, this is a significant issue. But you still have to know where that issue stands in relation to other doctrines and teachings, right? Because this brother can be a follower of Christ, be saved by grace, through faith, in the body, and yet not share every belief that we have as an individual or even collectively as a church. So, Albert, we'll come back back to that. I think that's an important point. You're just saying what we're all experiencing. I mean, I I can think of examples myself where we're bumping up against other people that are true believers, but that we don't see eye to eye on all these things. We're going to have to get into the, the details of how to actually have those kinds of of conversations. So thank you, brother, for bringing that up. Let me just finish up by saying this, folks, and we'll come back. Um, This is the disposition we need at the beginning, okay, at the outset. These are the attitudes and the actions we have to have at the start that will help us to prevent some conflicts and certainly help us to resolve things. Because sometimes the issues are not the issues. I mean, the issue, the thing that we're talking about or having a conflict over, a lot of times that's not as, as big as we make it out to be. And one of the main problems, I think often the main problem, is that we lack these qualities and these characteristics in our lives. We lack the humility, we lack the gentleness and the patience and the loving forbearance. We're not keeping in mind the call of God. We're not motivated in, in the right kinds of ways uh, we're looking for the techniques to get through these situations, but really not developing Christ-like attitudes and a commitment to forbear and to work hard. But those things always precede the techniques, right? The gospel makes the difference. Because God bears with me, I can bear with others. Because God forgives me, I can forgive others. Because God loves me, I can love others. And there's not a single part of your life that escapes the impact of the gospel. So you can love one another in the body of Christ. You can love your enemies. You can initiate in resolving conflict. You can admit your own faults. You can turn conflict into an opportunity to be like Jesus. And you should. 
because peace is worth our greatest effort. So we'll come back. We'll, we're going to try next time to just define conflict, what, what, what it is. We'll talk about some, begin to talk about some of the causes of conflict. Just looking at biblical passages where we know conflict existed, but then looking at sort of the components of what was going on in that context that led to those times of strife and trouble, because we basically, you know, the scriptures are not there for us folks to read and go, oh, that's not me, <laughs> or, you know, I can't believe those people did that, right? The scriptures are there for us to identify with those things and say, that's exactly what I do. I fall into that same thing. I make those same decisions and to give us the wisdom and light we need to, to honor Christ in these relationships. So we'll stop there. We'll come back. We'll talk about the definition of conflict and then get into some of the causes. Um, and don't forget uh, tonight, to, uh, if you can make that, again, our, our prayer time at 6. We'd love to have you for that. All right. Thanks for your time, folks.